The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. This is week number four, Holly, of someone saying you need to talk to, insert name here, as Carol was the one who said that we need to talk to uh, Lisa this week. Yes, and so we said, okay, Carol, your wish is our command, and voila, (laughs) here we go. Yeah, speaker, educator, uh, gold medalist. Lisa Mays Stringer, how are you? I'm doing well. We uh, like to ask the skill testing question because we never Uh-oh. know where it's going to go. I <laughs> no, know. It's, it's not hard. has nothing to do with math because I wouldn't get the answer right. <laughs> One time? No. Um, <laughs> it's like Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> that skill testing question is, who are you and where did you come from? Oh, okay. Uh, so Lisa Mays Stringer. And uh, so I was born in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, went to university in Toronto, York University, and then I went to university, Simon Fraser University, got my education. In the middle of all that, I was doing track and field um, at a high level and, um, yeah, went to to uh, Calgary from there, became a teacher, was approached to do bobsled, uh, became part of the national bobsled team for about nine years. Um, before moving to France. And then uh, with my family, we lived there for 12 years. And now we are back in the West in Edmonton. And I love this city. Yes. That, that does answer a lot of questions, though, because, I mean, as a bobsledder and then growing up in Saskatchewan, there's not a lot of hills for you to really <laughs> bobsled down. So I was like, how does this work? Well, you know, I actually, oh, you know, I have the trophy around someplace, but when I was six, I did win the slide-a-thon. No, when I was in grade six, okay. the North Gallifrey <laughs> slide-a-thon on King Hill, and I just found the, the trophy the other day. So we won <laughs> trophies, and we won uh, chips and pop. We were, that was like so exciting. Yes. <laughs> With Always Pamela a winner. Balance. <laughs> Pamela Balance, I remember. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Good childhood memories. And, yeah. and but I'm guessing that didn't plant the seed uh <laughs> for the uh eventual ending up in the bobsled team for the, the national level. Uh no, I think that I was driving it though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um so no, I actually when I was approached to do bobsled, I literally turned them down um, two times flat out. I just said, um, ha ha, you know, like people mm-hmm. like me don't do that sport. You know, it's too cold. And yeah. so that was the first thing that I said. I was like, I kind of joked around like, yeah, that's, that's too cold. And I really didn't have any, I really didn't want to, to be out in the cold. And then they approached me again and I said, Oh, you know, women do bobsled. Um, mm. Wow. I didn't realize that. Um, but I, I just didn't, I still wasn't, you know, open to it. And they kept approaching me because I have a heptathlon background. I did the heptathlon when I did track and field and I did it at a high level. And so they like to, um, uh, approach heptathletes and decathletes because you need a lot of power, mm. um, to push the bobsled power and like speed. And so that's why I was, um, recruited in that way. So the third time, they just took me to, to dinner, to lunch. And that was really smart because I love food. So, <laughs> you know, that kind of softened things a little bit. And, uh, and then, um, I, I was listening a bit closer, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, they said, just come to one of the, one of the, um, tryouts, like the physical testing, just to see what it's all about. So 
I hadn't trained, you know, I'd only been playing um, recreational volleyball and recreational basketball for about seven years at that point after all my um, competitive training for the heptathlon and mm-hmm. other events. And um, so I was, I wasn't in the greatest shape um, mm. and I uh, hadn't done sprinting. So I came, I don't know why I brought my spikes, but I did. I was sitting there, I guess I was deciding, am I going to do this? And so I was sitting there in the bleachers and one of the coaches, uh, Dennis Marinoi came up to me and he said, um, why don't you just do a couple of the tests, you know? So I'm like, okay. So I came down, put my spikes on. And after like the first two, every, I felt like I had torn everything in, in my legs. <laughs> um, it was really hard. It was like, you know, jumps and, and sprinting, like all out sprinting. But then when we got the results, um, I, I ended up, uh, being first or second in all of those tests. And wow. I was like, whoa. And I thought, whoa, I could actually make this team. Like if I train, perhaps, because you still had to push the sled. Yeah. There's one thing with physical testing and there's nothing, another thing to push the sled. It's, a lot of times it doesn't translate, you know, the speed to the, uh, to the sled. So you have to be tested. And, um, and so I started doing all the training. I started getting a dream to, you know, uh, being up for Canada, travel. I started to get really excited. And um, so I started training. I started really training hard so that when it came to all of the uh, push training with the actual bobsled, um, it took a while. I had some injuries. I fell one time and really injured myself. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I really knew nothing about the sport. I have something <laughs> really, really embarrassing to share. Really embarrassing. Uh. The first time that I went to push the bobsled, the coach was showing me what to do. I literally knew nothing. So he pushed it and then he hopped in backwards to stop it. And so what did I do? I pushed it. I hopped in backwards. Like it was, I had never seen anybody push. It was the first time. It was just me and him. I'd never, ever seen it in my life. And so, yeah, it's really embarrassing whenever I share that because, yeah. But anyway, uh, what a uh, fantastic experience to be part of the national team. I think I was a part of the team for, uh, for eight years, eight or mm-hmm. nine years. Yeah. Eight years. What is it like though? Cause I mean, for, it's one thing to be a great athlete. It's one thing to be somebody who could sprint really quickly on ice and jump into a bobsled, but then it's a whole other thing to hurl yourself at hundreds of kilometers down an icy slope, trying to be the fastest one to do it. Uh, from like maybe your first time going down, what was that like for you? Oh, my first time going down. Oh my goodness. So I, um, you know, like I said, I didn't know anything about the sport. So I'm thinking to myself, Oh, I want to drive that. I don't want to just be the pusher. I want to drive that. And so I said to the coach, um, you know, I want to pilot. And then, you know, it took me years and years to remember why he looked at me that way. Kind of like, Hmm, because I didn't know at the time that nobody, no woman had ever started out like, or man, people don't start out as pilots. Oh. You get the experience behind um, at first so that you can get used to the speed and um, the all of the um, G-forces can be at five, six G-forces in certain corners. And so it's pretty intense. And so, um, so I didn't know any better. And 
So then my first time going down was in a driving school. So that means that somebody was learning how to pilot. So usually you go down behind someone, have some smooth rides, you know, they kind of like, this is so nice and easy. You know, you kind of get lulled into it. Well, I was behind someone who had never driven a bobsled before. And so we were like, boop, 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 you know, like all over the place. And they tell you beforehand, if you pull the brakes, it's a $500 penalty, like a fine, because you're going to wreck the ice. And so all I'm thinking, pull the brakes, pull the brakes. Oh, it's a fine. And I prayed. I was like, oh, my God, stop this thing. I I was terrified. It was the scariest situation. And then we get to the bottom and I pull the brakes and they break. The brakes break. We, oh, it goes man. like this. And then we, we start going. We're going way up the hill. And then it stops. And we start going backwards. And he starts to kind of steer it. And we end up on the dock. And so I was shaking. My whole body was shaking. <laughs> and, and then I'm thinking to myself, oh, my goodness. Well, actually, someone ran up to me. And they said, because at this point, I had already had two children. And two of my children. And so one of the people runs up to me, one of the officials says, Lisa, which is more difficult, bobsleigh or giving birth? And I said, (laughs) bobsleigh. And in my head, I'm thinking, I'm nuts. I'm never coming back. And then she said, I'm so sorry. You can't go. You can't drive because the bobsled's broken. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. And in my head, I'm thinking, oh, thank goodness, because (laughs) I've made a huge mistake. But, so, your, yeah. but your faith had never been stronger. <laughs> yeah, I just went home and I prayed. And I'm like, God, I don't know if you want me to do this. I don't know if you want to continue this sport. Um, and I just wasn't quite sure if I was going to continue. Actually, I wasn't going to. I was going to call them and say I quit. Yeah. And I started to, uh, I was up really late and because it was the evening. And um, I watched a show and uh, it was, I think, Glenn wrote, no, Glenn, um, what's his name? He was an astronaut, Glenn something. He was part of the Apollo 13, and I can't think of his name right now. Um, anyway, so he was on the show, the Charlie Rose show, and um, he, um, it was between him and Neil Armstrong to go to the moon. And they, he talked about fear. So he was asked, how do you get over fear? And I saw so my ears perked up like, yeah, how do you get over fear? And he said, you know what? The only way to get over fear is to face it. Hmm. And each time you face it and you overcome it, then you become more fearless. And I thought, that's, wow, that's so true. And then I thought to myself, well, I'm not going to the moon. So I'll give myself 10 times. And if I'm still this petrified, then I will, I will, um, I will stop. And so, you know, I carry that same attitude into my my Christian walk, my walk with God, that when there's something that is really, you know, I'm really afraid to do, I just, I get on my knees, I pray, I pray about it, and then I just give it to God. If it's something that I know is good and right and noble that I should be doing, then I just ask God for help. And then I take that step. I won't say I'll do it every time, but let's just say most of the time. I'll take that step and it's like I'm walking off a cliff. But I can tell you that that's when I've seen the most amazing things happen in my life um, is when I am doing something and I'm terrified and I'm doing it for God. Um, and so um, 
So yeah, so that's my experience. My first time going down the um, bobsled track was in a driving school. <laughs> wild. But it went much better moving forward, didn't it? Yeah, I was so lucky. I was so fortunate. I was able to, I actually did the driving school and then they needed me as a brick person. So I did that uh, for a few months and then I went back to driving. And um, I think it was about two years later um, where, yeah, I ended up being the, the Canadian champion. So I was very really? thankful that, you know, I stuck with it and I was able to have these incredible experiences and meet so many, so many amazing people from around the world. I think I had about 250 people over to my house, athletes from all over the world. Oh, wow. Yeah. When we had events, I would just invite everybody over and we'd have barbecues in the snow. And yeah, it was, it was wonderful. You made an interesting comment, though, because you had said, oh, I didn't know that there was women bobsledders. Yeah. Um, th- that is already one thing. What about women bobsledders who are of color? Was that <laughs> something that you um, paved the way for? Was that something that was maybe brand new to that sport? Well, you know, it was usually if there was a black person, uh, they were usually a brick person. So mm-hmm. everybody knew about the Jamaican bobsled team. So everybody would be like, right. ah, yeah. Go runnings every time they saw me, right? And yeah. I had never even seen the show. I hadn't seen the movie. <laughs> and so I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was kind of like a joke, right? Like a mm-hmm. black pilot. And so I remember, you know, uh, when I was in uh, the push camp uh, in the summertime and other countries coming to com- to use our track and to do summer training in Calgary. And I remember this one country, um, people from the Netherlands, and they're walking by and they must have done it. I think they did it on purpose that I could hear, but they just said, yeah, you know, uh, they can push, but they can't drive. And they knew mm-hmm. that I was a pilot. And, um, and so I just kind of like, I'm not like a, a vengeful, vengeful person. Like I'm a competitive person, but I'm like, I'm not vengeful. And so mm-hmm. I just kind of like thought about that. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of interesting that they would say that. And I was, I was just kind of not even aware of that I didn't really look around me and see that there wasn't a lot of black pilots I wasn't cognitive of it and then little by little I started to get more aware like hey like I'm the only because people so many people were joking about it with me like not just people in the world but bobsledders and stuff right and kind of watching me and so I started to kind of pick up on that and um and so yeah um I was the first black Canadian um pilot, well, North American, I guess, to do World Cup, uh, you know, to win the um, Canadian Championships. Um, yeah, so it was something that was that was not that was rare around the world. Um, and so uh, it was quite interesting. But it was one thing that I remembered. And this was about I think it was that season or the season after I was trying I was trying to do my qualification for the Olympics. And uh, the that person um who had those people who had said that to me i was competing against them at a world cup in Mm. um germany and of course i wasn't thinking about what they said at all i was just like competing like just focused on trying to do my best and i had to have a certain position um like sixth or seventh and um and so i was like just so anxious you know and i went they were ahead of me and it's two runs um and it's a total of the two runs so it's the second run they were ahead of me um, I went and, um, 
And then I'm, I'm waiting and then they, um, so it goes from 10 to one on the second run. And so I was before them because I think I was eight. And, um, and so they came after me and, um, and then I, I beat them. <laughs> it was years later and I realized, oh yeah, I guess black people can drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's something that I, it's hard to reconcile sometimes is just how yeah. people see your little, like your skin and they make all these assumptions about you and your capabilities and how far you can go. Um, was this the first time that you had really experienced this level of racism essentially against yourself or people that you were with? Um, I think that I was kind of sheltered in Saskatchewan or naive. I'm not too sure, or I didn't want to. So I grew yeah. up in a community where I think I was pretty like sheltered in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, because they, they loved our family. And mm. so, and, you know, we were treated very well. My brother, you know, he played NFL football. He's a huge star and he was always a star. So I think that helped pave the way for the rest of us because, you know, that respect. So, mm-hmm. I mean, so I didn't really see it so much when I was, um, younger. And then when I got to Toronto, it was different when I went to university there. Um, you know, I just saw the different cultures. Uh, it was quite different. I received racism from, um, some whites, but also from blacks because I was hanging with whites because I hung out with whites, blacks, Chinese, native. Like I was, I was just, I grew up that way. And so, um, I started to get kind of like the other thing too, um, but definitely the worst for me was when I was on the national team and it was around my, you know, near uh, around, well, 2005, uh, we got a new coach and he was discriminatory, racist, um, to my face. So it wasn't even like it was silent. Mm-hmm. It was like over saying things to me saying, you know, you're not going to go to the Olympics. I'm putting these other people on the team instead of you, even though I was, you know, ahead of the other pilots by far. That was the worst uh, thing that had happened to me uh, in my entire life. It was traumatic. And, uh, you know, I prayed so much. I had to really get on my knees and I just thought, oh, he's not going to win. You know, God, you know, it'll all be okay. It's not going to work out. But yeah, he did. He did everything that he could in his power. And I, I didn't even know him. I had nothing against him. I'd never said one bad word. It's just, it was just me. And, um, and so, yeah, that was, the worst experience that I went through. It was really hard. I learned a lot about David and Joseph during that yeah. part. That's, that's what I studied out and it helped me. It helped me to through that. Was faith a big part of your life growing up? Yeah. Um, it was something I went to church every, you know, Sunday. Uh, my family did. Uh, I always believed in God and I always tried to live for God. So, I did live very differently from the people around me. You know, like there's a lot of people have come to faith and they really were in the world, part of the world, things like that. Um, I, I wasn't one of those people. I was one of those people who like always tried to, you know, do what's right. When all my teammates were um, going out and getting the alcohol and drinking during our tournaments, I sat by myself um, in mm. the um, hotel room and I felt very lonely and I would cry it was really hard. That was as a teenager. And then as a university student, 
I, you know, started to go to the parties and I really tried to see, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've been wrong this whole time, you know? So I went, I didn't get drunk, but I just wanted to see. And I did that for a while. And I just remember feeling like empty. I just thought, wow, like it's not here either. So where is it? Um, and this is where, and when my, um, you know, God reached out to me, I would say like woke me up and just kind of like grabbed my hand. Um, and I just learned a lot about a, a depth, you know, like I, I had a lot of self-righteousness, a lot of pride. Um, I, so I just, some people started studying the Bible with me and really teaching me, uh, basics about, you know, Christianity and my life radically changed at that point. I was, I was 19 years old. And um, it, it was the change for my life. I decided, no, I'm going to live for Jesus. He is Lord of my life from now on. And that was a decision that I made. As uh, you're navigating the bobsled world and the racism, I'm going to guess sexism as well, because we've also heard about um, is Kaylee Humphreys, is it? Um, yeah. And her story as well. But how did your faith help you navigate that that time of life and being yep. in a situation where you're yep. representing our country, I know. but yet the sport's <clears throat> treating you less than. Yeah. And, you know, um, it was the culture at the time. Um, athletes didn't have a lot of, um, there was just a lack of leadership. And so mm. the coaches, if you had a coach that was uh, bent a certain way, there just wasn't a lot of control over those coaches, especially yeah. when you traveled overseas. Um, and so, yeah, I did face it all at the same time. It was like a, triple whammy because I had children yeah. and so um, it was like bringing a baby carriage onto a football field you know like oh how can a you know mom do this this is you know a man's yeah. sport so mm. there was that um there was <clears throat> um he what he said was I'm not take I'm not sending a married um ch- uh, uh, woman with children to Olympic Games to represent Canada and and then he would uh you know tell us to everybody and um, but it was also because I was black right (laughs) navigating that uh i just really you know a lot of things can come up into your heart right like how dare you um like this is just so unfair and um and i'm i'm a proud canadian so i mean i did the canada day speech for calgary so and it was called my canada because my canada is like a baby to me right and so for this to happen when i was on a national team competing mm-hmm. for my beloved country um to have this type of betrayal was it was it was the hardest most difficult thing that i had ever faced in my life up to mm-hmm. that point in my life and i felt betrayed yes and so i just had to you know dig into the scriptures don't pay back god god will do it you know like don't take revenge my friend mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh romans 12 um love must be sincere Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. I, I just had to memorize all those things. Look at Joseph, look at David. How did they handle those things? And just really put my heart out there and cry out to God and be honest and be open, but just deal with that with God and me. So yeah, my faith helped me a lot to not to get a bitter heart um, during that time. You have this love for Canada so much. Then why did you end up leaving? Why move and and go yeah. to the other side of the world? Yeah, because of this. I was uh, in the situation with my family. We were hurting, and um, we. I was um, asked to help and re uh, restart, like rebuild the 
program for France, for L'Equipe de France, for bobsled. And so they, they called me over there because it was not like a thing that was, you know, it was publicly, I was publicly humiliated. So all the nations knew what was going on. And so people were, they're just trying to, they're just, they just protected me, honestly. Like, um, so, you know, France did that. And then the Swiss, the top Swiss, uh, who was a top bobsledder, a bobsled maker at the time, he made me my bobsled for me and practically gave it to me. Wow. And then Monaco helped out a lot. Um, the coach from Monaco helped me. So there's France, France, Monaco, uh, Switzerland, and then Germany. They also, um, took us under their wings and just, guided us in every single way to support uh, me and, and my team. So it was really a world thing just because it was, it was really bad what happened. Cause it was so, it was like, it was, he did it publicly while I was competing, while I was on the starting line, everything. It was, it was bad. So yes. So we went to, ended up going to France, only planned to stay for a few years and we ended up staying for 12 years. Mm. Um, and that was because, um, uh, with the church there, we wanted to help to encourage, uh, the church. It was not doing well. And we wanted to, um, my husband and I, we were like, well, we're not, we don't know a lot, but we can encourage. We know how to encourage. So let's do that. So we thought it'd be like a couple of years. Well, it turned into 12 years. Mm. And in the meantime, my daughter, um, Madison, she ended up, all of our children, you know, they went to school there. They know three languages. And, um, yeah. And she ended up competing for France and she, she became the world champion for junior, uh, <laughs> junior world champion for France a couple of years, uh, cool. competing for France a few years ago. And so, so that's why we ended up going to France. And I think I needed it for some healing, yeah. some time for healing and perspective as well. Um, yeah, it wasn't all of Canada. It was a few people in Canada who did this. So why did you come back? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Everybody says Edmonton. Why did you come back <laughs> yeah. to Edmonton? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, um, long story. Lots of things happened in our lives. So many great things. Um, so many wonderful things. And um, in 2015, my husband was diagnosed with brain cancer. So an inoperable and untreatable um, brain cancer on the top of his brain stem. Hmm. And it's the rarest. They have never seen anything like this ever. So he was given anywhere from any day to two years to live. So that means for 24 hours a day, um, we didn't know if he was going to die, like at, because of where it's located, it's located at the point where it controls your heart, your lungs. So if it grew, grew, um, then he would die. There was nothing they can do. And so we lived with that kind of like stress and, you know, tension and literally walking through the valley of the shadow of death 24 seven. Um, so once a year he would get, um, an exam, they would do an MRI once or twice a year, actually twice a year. And, um, so what they found finally was that it was growing. And then when we found out, it stopped growing mm. when we all started praying. Um, it stopped. That was the only way he would survive. It had to stop. And I can tell you, my prayer was, God, you have decided to take my husband because we had 
so many specialists looking at this, they all said the same thing. Just enjoy the life that you have left on this earth to my husband. And so I prayed, God, you have decided to take my husband and I'm asking you to change your mind. And I reasoned with him. You know, there's many people, few people in the Bible who um, had asked for extra years and there is, you know, so I just said, God, you know, you've created us. I know a lot of people have had these prayers and, you know, you've created us, you made us. I know that you can, you know, you have the power. So I know that you can do this. It's up to you. Um, but this is my request. And I also requested, I don't, I'm not like one of those people who asked for 15 years or 10 years. I'm asking for uh, a long life together to old age and a normal life together into old age. And, um, and so my husband's symptoms were quite severe. Um, a lot of like shaking his hand and his foot and just like seven, eight or nine side effects. So it was quite severe. He was sleeping around 19 to 20 hours a day. Mm. And this mm. went on for about four and a half years while we were in France. And so finally he kept the, one of the uh, smart, uh, one of the smart neurologists or neuro, neuro, yeah, neurologist. He said, Mr. Stringer, or neur- neurosurgeons, he said, Mr. Stringer, we're going to try something. Why don't you try this drug? We don't know if it's going to work, but give it a try. And so, uh, he, uh, he tried this, this drug and it's for, um, it's for Parkinson's. And because the area is the same area as Parkinson's, but it's not Parkinson's, um, it's like a synthetic dopamine. So he tried it like immediately. Uh, it had positive effects. Now it's not doing anything to help the, the tumor, but it was helping mm. the side effects. And mm. so within two days, he was almost normal, like sleep patterns, um, everything. His life completely changed. And of course, wow. for the entire family, um, it, it changed all of our lives. And, um, and so thank goodness, you know, um, so you can imagine how hard this was on our children as well. So as a family, it was extremely difficult. So we're a prayerful family and we had been up to that point and we were very, um, you know, we did devotionals once or twice a week. And so we were a very, you know, Christ-centered family and definitely drew us closer to God, understanding you think a lot about heaven. You think a lot about what it's going to be like. Uh, it changes you and, or either become bitter or you just become better. <laughs> hmm. And, um, and so, um, you know, you go through your struggles, your ups and downs, through all of that, all the emotions and everything, really struggling with God through the wilderness. Um, so then at about five years afterwards, um, well, just before it was like around March, just before COVID, um, of 2020, finally one of them said, um, you know, it just hasn't grown. And they said they all decided together as a group, uh, because there was about 20 on his case. And they just said, you know, uh, Mr. Stringer, we are considering that it has stopped. It's not going to grow any longer and you're going to live a long life. Hmm. And, you know, before that, you know, when my husband was ill, um, I, I had started a school. I have a school, um, in, in France called Loving English. Um, so we go in and we do programs for different uh, schools in France. We have about 600 students and, um, I have a lot of different teachers. And so I was doing my career, you know, he was doing his career. He was able to go back to work and do his career. And, um, but while he was ill, 
I said to Chris, you know, do you want to go back to Canada? And he decided, um, no, like we're going to stay here. And um, because we had wanted to do a lot of um, humanitarian work, we had started doing humanitarian works. So I used to, uh, um, I organized a lot of uh, operas in castles. I know it sounds crazy. No, it's amazing. It sounds awesome. <laughs> I yeah, know. In, in, in France to raise money um, for uh, my, our humanitarian projects. So we put in a well in Africa, a free healthcare clinic uh, in Togo, Lome, uh, in a poor place, poor section of the city, mm. and um, and then huge project in Bangladesh with a school. So he decided, and we decided together, this is what we want to do, really pour our hearts and our time into these humanitarian projects and not knowing if he's going to die, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's what we did. He started Hope Worldwide France. And Hope Worldwide is international service. Like millions, well, about a million people a year. It's, uh, uh, you know, and so France didn't have one. So we did Hope Worldwide France. And so that's what we did. We kept our jobs. We kept helping out with the church and we focused on uh, raising money and kind of helping to oversee these projects through France and Bangladesh, not knowing how many days or years my husband would have on this earth. And um, so, you know, that was during the time. And then, you know, afterwards, well, during the time, um, that's when we found out that they said that he's going to live a long life. So for myself, um, I was busy with my school and serving all these different people. And I just saw how so many of these people that I was serving, um, I just started to feel like my talent is being used for the world. Like I want to use it hundred percent for God, like all those different things that he's given me. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to use it like more specifically um, full time. So I was thinking in my head, wor- working full time for hope. Um, that's what I was thinking. So I started looking into it, asking questions, seeing if there's job openings. I wanted to do work full time for Hope Worldwide for the humanitarian missions, focus on that. What I didn't realize was that God was preparing me <laughs> for the full time ministry. I always said, I'll never do that. I'll do every, yeah. I'll be like right hand person. I'll help out. Yeah. I will never work full time in the ministry. Like that was a never, God just like made such a joke out of that. So he was preparing me to work full time in the ministry. And so here, what happened is uh, we've been asked many times, go full time in the ministry. It was no, no, no. Like we were asked again, May 2020 uh, on the phone. You guys should, you know, think about going into the ministry. My husband and I had, had never talked about doing the ministry. And we looked at each other at the same time. And we both did this. Yes, we were ready at exactly mm-hmm. the same time to go full time. And so we said yes. And so we were, we were hired uh, by Edmonton to come here, uh, to, to lead the church. And this is what we've been doing now for, um, it'll be three years, September 1st. And so this is why we came back to Edmonton and, um, it's great. We're also closer to our families, his family, my family. That's a lot of them still in Saskatchewan. And uh, we're able to work with these amazing people here in the church in Edmonton, the capital city church. Family is so important to you. And I know we want to talk about why me moments. I want to dive into that. I'm trying to see what time we're at. Um, but I am also really curious about your family because uh, 
if you check out your Wikipedia page, it's quite interesting. <laughs> you do have one. Um, you have quite it could a. Could all be fake, Holly. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, but there's something about being black in Canada, and I'm mixed, and so I don't know anything about my black heritage except for my dad was from Trinidad. They were slaves. I might have also had some, you know, Trinidadian, indigenous or Venezuelan. It's just not known. But you have a beautiful history that, um, yeah, your lineage is quite impressive. So do you mind sharing a little bit about where you came from? Because it sounds like what you've been through now, that warrior spirit, it came from somewhere. So where did it come from? I definitely think that, um, you know, my my great-grandmother and my great-grandfather, Joseph and Maddie Mays, um, they, he was the minister of a church in the Southern United States in Oklahoma. And they were both slaves. He was a slave in Georgia. And so was my great grandmother. In fact, her slave owner was Hiram Warner. He was the head of the Supreme Court of Georgia and he was a congressman. Mm. He was fighting to keep slavery in the United States. That was her, that was wow. her master. <laughs> And, uh, so they were freed and, um, and so they, there was Jim Crow laws. There were so many horrible things that were still going on. And she had a lot of, they had 13 children, a lot of boys, they were in danger. And there's just a lot of things that were just not right. And so they asked the congregation, what do you think about going into Canada? They received these, the information that Canada was sending out in that time because Canada was trying to populate Western Canada. And so they were sending flyers and things and people all over the world to try to get people to come. It wasn't supposed to go to the ex-slaves, the freed slaves, but it did. And, um, and so they, he and my great grandmother, they led up, um, a lot of families from Oklahoma to Saskatchewan mm-hmm. and they ended up, um, homesteading. Uh, it's called North of the Valley by Maidstone, Saskatchewan, which is close to North Battleford, where I grew up. And so she was a midwife. Um, they started a church um, it's called the Shiloh Church. It's a historical monument there right now for Saskatchewan. And um, but she she delivered babies, so she was um, equally equal. I guess she she treated everyone equally: the whites, the natives, the the blacks. She delivered all their babies. She would go and visit them. Um, you know, hang out. She didn't, she didn't hold hostility in her heart. And I think that's what we learned was that even if things are terrible, if you're treated terrible, don't be hostile, Mm -hmm. you know, treat people right, leave it to God. So, um, so that's where, um, probably that sort of thing, you know, doing things, even if it's, um, a little bit scary and, and doing things, like having integrity, I think that's really deep in my family, integrity, uh, doing things right. And then for me, I had to learn how to do things for the right reason. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, going to, so I'm, I'm very proud of, very thankful to be part of, um, you know, that heritage and to have uh, people like my, my great grandparents, especially Maddie, um, as an example to, to follow. Can you share with us a why me moment? Whether it be in the hill or a valley of your yeah. life. Yes. Um, for Bob said it was both, you know, um, you're talking about why me moments on the hillsides, you're saying on the mountains. Mountain tops of the valleys. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I've been both 
in bobsleigh on the mountaintop. <laughs> I've had the Wyoming on the mountaintop, literally. Yeah. <laughs> you start on the top of a mountain, you go down really fast in the bobsleigh and then the valley um, in the same sport. And I shared the one earlier with the racism and just discrimination. Um, that was something that was extremely difficult. And so when I came back to Canada, I'll share about that one because I never shared it, that story. In fact, this is the first time that I'm actually sharing this publicly. I had a lot of media ask me what happened, you know, why are you in France? Like what happened, Lisa? And I just, I didn't want to share. I, I just, I wasn't ready. And I don't think Canada was ready. I don't think Canada, I, I literally thought Canada will believe that this is happening in Canada. Yeah. And now that things have become more, you know, open and people have talked more. Um, when I came back to, to Canada, um, it was, God, I guess the spirit's just saying like, now's, now's the time to speak. So, um, I had athletes on the national team contact me and ask me to help them because it was still going on. And the, the president at the time contacted me. Uh, we had, we talked for 10 hours and I decided I was going to do whatever I could to help these athletes. And so I did behind the scenes. And, uh, my goal was to have a change for all of Canada to protect athletes. Um, and so that did happen a few months later where, you know, the, the, uh, I'm not going to say I was the only one in that, but the Bobsy athletes did talk about it. Things, you know, they decided to go public and, um, it caught the attention of other teams. Other teams went public, caught the attention of the minister of sport. And then she had an emergency meeting put in place safe, um, it's safe practices and every single national team has to be part of that. <clears throat> to protect athletes. Otherwise they mm. cannot get supported by the federal government. That was July 1st of last year. And so um, did my warrior spirit come out? Yes, absolutely. Because, um, <laughs> you know, I wanted to help. I wanted to help these people, not in a combative way, but in a non-violent, um, smart way. You know, just I gave them support with finding lawyers for them and, strategy and just support emotional support and so um i would say that that was a mountaintop experience um that happened because of the valley her and her husband involved in uh, capital city church of christ love and english uh hope worldwide france at lisa stringer on the insta I'm so glad that uh, Carol said you, we got to talk to you. And Lisa, this has just been absolutely amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And um, it's been wonderful to uh, to meet you. And uh, thank you for doing this uh, for so many people across Canada. I'm really thankful that you that you're doing this. It's it's um, going to help people in their faith. And so thank you for this. Thank you for you. Thank you, Lisa, for saying yes. Yes. And my goodness, what a, what an amazing woman. I know an amazing family. I am yeah. um, uh, hearing about her husband was was a lot, and just seeing what they've been through. But to see their positivity and how they're still serving God in such a meaningful way in Edmonton, I love it. Like it's just such an inspiring story, and just grateful that she took time to to speak with us today. We've had a lot of husband and wives on our podcast. I think now we got to reach out to him and see if we can get him on and kind of yes. get his perspective of things. Yes, let's do it. So we're putting that out there. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, thank you to everybody who has been a part of this. We are coming up on 300 episodes. We are trying to grow all the socials, especially our YouTube, Holly. Yeah, exactly. So make sure you check us out. It's Why Me Project Podcast on YouTube. Also, uh, I think it's that on all the other uh, social media platforms as well, except for yeah. Twitter. Twitter, okay. just it's Why Me Project. But uh, please follow us, subscribe, rate, review. We would love to hear from you in all those capacities. And let's just keep growing this together. Yeah, we appreciate all of the projectors. Uh, check it out. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Edify, and FaithStrongToday.com.